Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20 this morning. See, I'm at that age. I got, I got my music glasses. I got my reading glasses. It's, it's awful. Now, I know that uh, if you're in the small groups or if you just like to take notes, you're used to having notes in front of you, uh, kind of an outline that you answer some questions to. Uh, I apologize. It was a full week, and but I'm going to trust that uh, as I highlight some things, you'll in the blanks, you'll just take your own notes. And if your small group is meeting this week, here are some things that you want to think about, obviously, from the scripture. But here's something that was, was given to me this week in, in, in something that I hadn't thought previously about, but you might want to chew on it in your small group. And, and ask your small group leader what they think. We'll see how good they are. Uh, during the Thursday night service, we had the Monday, Monday night service. Um, I, I said a little phrase that Jesus washed all 12 disciples' feet. And then somebody came to me and he said, you know what that means? That Jesus washed Judas' feet. And then we began to expand upon that. So the question would be, who is on your list that you think off the top of your head, I'd never wash their feet? Okay. Do you have people like that? On, you got a list? You know. But remember whose feet Jesus washed. That was Judas. How did he look at Judas when he was washing his feet? Did he look him in the eye? What was his attitude? I mean, this was the man who in just a matter of minutes was going to betray him. But yet, in humility, he washed his feet. So think upon that this week. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would come and be present in the midst of us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things of your word, that the things of Jesus Christ might be made alive to us today, that they would be rich in our hearts. We would see how you call us to live these things out. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want you to stay in John chapter 20. And I'm going to read something from Acts here in just a moment. Today's Easter, in case you didn't know. Okay. <laughs> Today's about an empty tomb, and it's about the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm not here this morning really to attempt to apologetically uh, defend it or to give you a proof that will help you understand that this is true. Dan did a great job at the early service this morning giving us uh, three proofs and, and the natural outcomes and outgrowths of those things in our lives. But really, I doubt that any of us would be here this morning if we didn't to some degree believe in the resurrection. There are some at the end of the spectrum who are sold out whole hog in and, and say the same body that went in is the same body that came out of the grave. Then perhaps at the other, other end of the spectrum today, there are those who say, well, I, I, I believe, but, but you know, I, I just need a... I just need a little push. I just need something to help me get over the, the hump and really understand this and really get a hold of it. Well, this morning really is about the fact of the resurrection, the fact that it was prophesied many times in the Old Testament, the fact that said Jesus said it was going to happen, the fact that his death was recorded and witnessed by over 500 individuals at the time, and the very fact of the existence, the continued existence of the body of Christ today in the form of the church. And an individual's lack of faith does not change the facts. We might say that, uh, um, I'll, I'll take this pen and say, you know, I just have no faith that when I release, release this pen that it's going to go to the floor. Okay? I don't believe in it at all. 
Now, that does not change the fact that it goes right to the floor. Okay? It does not change that fact. The fact of whether we believe in the resurrection, whether we believe it's even possible, is, does not change this fact. The tomb was empty, and we serve and worship a risen Savior. So that's why, with that in mind, I'm going to begin in Acts 17. You just stay in John chapter 20, or if you feel like it, you can turn to Acts 17 with me. But we're going to do a little bit of introduction here in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Now, he is here in Athens, and this is a group uh, that, that is gathered at, at a, a typical place. It's the Acropolis there in Athens, and it's a well-known meeting place for the town council, uh, the people who fancy themselves as debaters and basically know-it-alls. And they gather there to exchange the current ideas and the current trends of the day and to chew on it. And, and um, you know, perhaps uh, a, a version of that would be the barbershop today and the guys all go down and talk about and solve all the problems of the world. Okay? Well, where were you? I was down at the barbershop talking, solving the problems of the world. Well, this is what they did at the Acropolis here. Let me begin in Acts 17, verse 22 and following. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore you worship in ignorance, and this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made them one and every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist." And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed." having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And then this first half of 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Okay, they were with Paul. He was making a logical, reasoned argument. And they had this unknown God that they were worshiping in and amongst the other gods. And then Paul throws in this resurrection stuff. Now, the, the New Testament is full of resurrection preaching. But the New Testament, the first century, is not full of resurrection. There's only one. Now, yes, we know Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Lazarus later died. Okay? Jesus is the only one whose tomb was empty and then ascended. This is the resurrection that Paul talks about. And these know-it-alls in Athens are following him very closely. And this is good. Hey, this might, we can chew on this for a while. Let's talk a little bit more about that. And then he throws in the resurrection and they go, you're kidding me. Okay? Resurrection was not common in the New Testament times, but it is essential to the things of Christianity. It is essential to the things of Christianity. Now, one of the key things here in verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. 
The repentance is urgent because God is going to judge the world. And when will he do that? Soon. Okay, That's the eschatological soon. When will Christ return? It will be soon. It was soon 2,000 years ago. If he's not here in 2,000, it will still be soon. This is the eminence of his return, the closeness of his return. And on that day, all will be condemned unless they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, this word from the Apostle Paul really flies in the face of even our contemporary assumptions that Christ rose from the dead. Because there are plenty within our world who say, well, well, if he did, what, what, in, what difference does it make in my life today? I mean, when I get up and go to work, what difference does resurrection make in my life? Does something that happened 2,000 years ago really influence me? Is it going to change my, my view? Is it going to help me in what I do today? Well... Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter whether you think it's helpful or not. It doesn't matter whether you think it influences your life today. Paul is saying it better make a difference in your life today because judgment is coming. There are things like the facts of gravity. It happens whether you believe it or not. There are things like the fact of resurrection. The tomb is empty whether we believe it or not. The things of the fact of judgment. It's coming whether we believe it or not. And it's not coming in the sense like, you remember the 600 million dollar lottery just last week or something and I, I don't know if anybody bought a ticket but you go and buy one ticket and your odds are what I don't know hundred million to one let's say the fact that judgment is coming is not like the lottery well I think the lottery I'm going to win the lottery no no that that's pie in the sky it's like death it's going to happen everybody dies it's coming the judgment is coming it's coming count on it so in the midst of all that goes on in our world the rise of relativism, the rise of subjectivism, a world where, you know, really the individual is the final arbiter of truth. We have this resurrection. We have this fact of this event that has happened. Now what do we do with it? We have a God who is holy. We have a God who is righteous, who knows us as individuals, and who cares for us in a way that we cannot comprehend the depth of his love. Remember I said earlier, knows the hairs on our head, knows the words before they come out of our mouths. Now with that, we go to John's Gospel, the 20th chapter. So much of John's Gospel deals with individuals. So much of how Jesus interacts and how John portrays him. Now remember, each Gospel is written for a particular audience. So we have certain things that are in Matthew that are not in Luke, certain things that are Luke that are not in Mark, certain things in Mark that are not in John, because each author has a particular audience that he is communicating the facts of Jesus Christ to. So he does, they don't include everything in, in their Gospels. And sometimes they highlight things that the others don't even mention. And that's what John does in several instances. He will spend an entire chapter about, with Jesus interacting with one person. Just one person. We see Jesus in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Just one person. We see him at, with the woman at the well. We see him with the man, the, the crippled man near the pool of Siloam who, who wants to get in the water. We see him interacting with a woman caught in adultery. Um, we, we see him with Lazarus. We see him in chapter 9 with a man born blind. He spends an entire chapter dealing with one man who was born blind and his healing. We see him dealing with Mary and and her anointing of him. And now at the resurrection of Jesus, we have a highlighted on one person. And that is Mary Magdalene. 
Mary Magdalene. John gives us a story of one person and her experience with the resurrected Christ. Now, back in, chap- back in Luke chapter 8, we learn all that there is to know about Mary Magdalene, really, to get us started. Her name comes from her native city, Magdala. And from Luke chapter 8, verse 2, it says, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits, sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. That's pretty much it about Mary. Seven demons. Now, you'll remember that uh, you had the demoniac there by the Sea of Galilee, and no one, no chain could hold him, no one could contain him. He ran wild in the caves, and Jesus comes out, and out of his mouth comes, What do you have to do with us, Jesus? And he says, Who are you? And he says, We are legion, because we are so many. And Jesus cast them out into the herd of the swine, and the swine run off the edge and are all killed, and the people of the little community go, Oh, Jesus! Leave us. You killed our pigs. No, no mention is made of the man who was possessed with this legion of demons. They're all upset that Jesus killed the pigs. No mention is, is made that no one could contain him. No chain could hold him. And now he is just as peaceful as all get out. Well, Mary had seven demons in her. Mary Magdalene. So she must have been quite a handful. Okay? Not just one demon, but seven demons demons. Seven is also the number of fullness in scripture. So perhaps this highlights the fact that her life was simply so overcome and so full of this possession that that is what what marked her as an individual in the world. Now in our world today, uh, we hardly ever see demon possession. You can in in other parts of the world. Uh, In our civilized society, we just don't deal much with it, but it is still around. Okay, it is still around. So we don't know much about Mary's past other than that. We know that her life was full of this demonic possession, and we know that she came personally in contact with Jesus Christ, and he healed her. Now, we do not equate Mary Magdalene with the other Mary in chapter 7 of Luke, or the unnamed woman that, uh, that was promiscuous. Our Mary was a person of means, as it says in Scripture. She supported Jesus. She had some real leadership qualities. Um, and there are a dozen references in the Gospels about her being healed, following Jesus, ministering to Jesus, beholding him at the crucifixion, standing by the cross, locating the tomb, watching the tomb, coming early to the tomb, being the first to see the resurrected Lord, reporting back to the disciples that Jesus Christ is risen. Now, as as Dan said this morning, I would not have picked Mary to be the one to announce the resurrection. It just doesn't make sense in first century culture. It just doesn't make sense at all. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Now, there's a difference between Mary and the average person. Not that the grace that is extended to Mary is any different than the saving grace extended to anybody else. I mean, you don't have to be possessed by seven demons to become a Christian and to be delivered of those things. I mean, Jesus Christ comes into our life and he gives us a new heart. That new heart is given to everybody who believes, who calls upon the name of Christ, believes in their hearts, confesses with their mouth. But Mary was so taken over by these demons that only the ministry of Jesus could set her free. No self-help books today, no set of tapes could have helped her, no friend with a good shoulder to cry on. It had to be the power of God to remove these things from her life. When you're in a public place, 
Have you ever looked at people? I mean, I like to watch people. Uh, when I travel, I, I get to the airport a little bit earlier so I can, I can sit there and watch people. You know, it's just interesting to see. And, and um, like the voice on the radio, to get a picture of their lives from that voice. Well, sometimes in, when you watch people, you see the toll of sin that is upon their person. Sometimes you see a person that looks 50, but they're only 25. And, 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 you know, it's not the years, it's the miles that they've put on their life. Sometimes you see their bodies crippled from a pursuit of sin, and, and, and the results remain in, in their body. Or, or, you know, sometimes you see the, um, the billboards, that, uh, the people who use methamphetamine, how it rots their teeth, the evidence of, of sin in their lives. Satan so blinds these people that they can't see that they're only remedy, their only way out of this is the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not until the Holy Spirit comes upon them and opens their eyes to their need that they see this. When Christ breaks in, when his saving grace breaks into a life, then there is the release from sin. Yes, the scars and the, the, the marks of their sin might still remain, but their heart is made new and therefore ever changed. The gospel always makes a difference when it comes into our lives. Remember the disciples left their nets? Matthew left his tax collecting business and followed Jesus. Mary was delivered and healed from the demons that dominated her life. Think of this ragtag group that's following Jesus and all the gossip that must have gone along. Man, do you see that crowd with Jesus? You know, they got that woman. I remember Mary. I saw her. Man, she was full of demons. And that tax gatherer, how many, how many people did he cheat in his life? And those stupid fishermen, all they're good at is gathering their nets. And here they are, they're going to change the world. Jesus is going to use this group of people to change the world. Now, because of the centuries that have passed, you know, dealing with Mary, we don't really understand the revolutionary aspect of the ministry of Jesus, culturally speaking. The change that Jesus brings to, our, to the world is not to be applied in a political sense, it's to be applied in a personal sense. My job is to understand the things of Christ and then to live them out, okay, and to change the world around me because of his grace within me. Look what he does, example, in Mary with the status of women in the first century. Remember the prayer of the Jewish man? I thank God I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Every morning they'd get up and say that. Women were little more than property in the first century. Okay, it was very easy to divorce, very easy to divorce. And Jesus comes along and really changes their status, changes their status. New Testament writers declared that women had equal access to the blessings of grace and salvation. Salvation was not just for men, it was for everybody. It was for children, it was for old people, it was for young people, it was for women, it was for men, it was for slaves, it was for free, it was for educated, for uneducated. The grace of Christ comes upon anybody who believes. Mary Magdalene is the first one at the tomb. As I said, would not have picked her in the first century, but Jesus does. He makes sure that she is the first one. So Mary came early to the tomb while it was still dark. She'd come back to finish the job of burial, okay, of burial that had not been allowed on the Sabbath, so she waited until the next day. She saw, saw that the stone had already been rolled away and that the tomb was empty. Mary's response is not jubilation. Now think about that. She comes and she heard Jesus talk 
about resurrection. She heard Jesus talk about these things, and she comes to the tomb, and there's no hallelujah breakdown going on that the tomb is empty. There's this great sorrow in her life. There's this great panic in her life that the tomb is empty. She runs back to Peter. They've taken the Lord. The tomb is empty. I don't know where they've put him. Till verses 3 and 4 of chapter 20. Let me read verse 2. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That would be John. He always mentions himself in that fashion. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. He doesn't go in. He looks. What does Peter do? He goes right past him into the tomb. Okay? And there are the cloths. This is the risen Lord. You'd think if somebody came and stole the body, they would have taken the cloths and everything. Or perhaps they would have unwrapped him like that and then taken the body. But what do they see about the cloth? Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came, following him, entered the tomb, and beheld the linen wrappings lying there, just as if, Jesus had come right out of them. Sure enough, he did. Sure enough, he did. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Believed he was gone. They haven't come to grips with the fact that he is risen from the dead. What did they think? The Romans took it. Did the Jews come and take his body? Who rolled the stone away? Who broke the seal? Nothing makes sense here except resurrection, but their eyes are still veiled to that truth. All the scriptures that talk about resurrection, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, dealing with crucifixion, Isaiah chapter 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. But he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. God's promise that the Messiah would be honored, that he would rise, that he would be glorified and exalted. Even the scriptures out of Jesus' own mouth deal with that. He said, I've come to this world to lay down my life for those who are his. If I lay it down, I will take it up again. Now jump to verse 11. Back to Mary. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. The man who had cast the demons out of her, the man who had changed her life, the man who had given her life back to her, she had all these hopes in, and now his body is gone. Verse 12, she beheld two angels. I don't think she understood they were angels at this time. Two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. And he asked the same question, Woman, why are you weeping? Why would she be crying? She was looking for a dead Jesus. She was expecting to see a body in the tomb. She came there, her devotion took her there, it's commendable really, but what good would it have done if she had come and put a few more embalming spices on a dead body? Her life would not really have been free. 
How could you have somebody who could take these demons out of her, and yet here he is, a dead body? See, a living religion doesn't dress up a dead body. That's why the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty because we live with a power that the rest of the world does not understand. We live with a power and a hope. And again, it's not the hope of the lottery. It's the hope of the sure things to come because of the fact Christ came out of the tomb. If he didn't come out of the tomb, we're wasting our time here this morning. But we're not wasting our time here this morning because we have come to worship a Lord who's risen. So if you came today wondering about a dead Jesus, wondering if God has any answers for you, I want to tell you what. He has answers for the entire world because the tomb is empty. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living and risen God. And he calls upon each of us to believe upon him and to confess that faith with our mouths that we might be saved. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, these are facts to believers. They are facts whether we're believers or not. But believers have had our eyes open. We can see these things. We understand these things as truth. We see very clearly the power of the resurrected Christ. When we come to the empty tomb, we don't deal with the issues of whether the Romans stole him or whether he wasn't really dead and he got out and rolled the stone away on his own. We understand that he was raised from the dead. The same body that went into the tomb came out of the tomb and was witnessed by more than 500 before he ascended back to the right hand of the throne of grace. We know, Heavenly Father, that at the moment of your choosing, you will send him back to collect those who belong to him. And our bodies will be raised in an imperishable form. For that which was sown perishable must be raised imperishable. We can't even fathom what those bodies will look like. We have a glimpse of it from Christ's body as he was witnessed by those 500. But yet, Lord, until that day, you placed us here. You keep us here that we might live out the things of Christ so that we might proclaim them in our words, we might proclaim them in our deeds, and that first and foremost, that you might be glorified. So today, Lord, come and fix these things in our hearts. The tomb is empty. You empower us to live and to do things we could not dream or imagine, and you call us to live for your glory, and you promise us the strength to do it. These are the facts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.